please pronounce your name correctly for me. Oh, right. Gunnhildur Högstóttir. All right. And you're from Iceland, but you're currently living in Berlin. So how did that happen, first of all? So like, how did you get from there, from Iceland to Berlin? Yes. I don't know that I am currently living in Berlin. I am here a lot, but I think of myself as living in Iceland, which is kind of ridiculous because I've been spending a lot of time away from Iceland. I have lived between like a village in Iceland and then Berlin. Did that for a few years, so I was like half and half. I studied in Holland and then I lived there for studying. Then I had like in Amsterdam, it's so it's quite difficult to get a place to live. And this is already what, 16, 17 years ago, 2005, I came to Berlin to write my thesis. And then I took my son, who was then living in England with his father while I lived in Holland. And I took him and we moved here to Berlin. His grandmother is German and I really like Germany and German culture. I love the language. I like Northern Europeanness of it somehow. So uh, yeah, I, we ended up coming here and somehow I've always, ever since then, I have like sometimes both feet, sometimes one foot, sometimes only my toe, you know, so I'm not, I'm in between all the time. Well, but, and you come from a very creative family, it seems like. It looks like your father was also an artist and also your, your son is a, a playwright. Yeah, my father is an artist. He is a very active artist still. He's 84. <laughs> and I mean, I think everybody in my family is a little bit... I mean, my sister, she would write long chronicled stories when we were children and read them to me and then read them to my son when he was a child about a talking horse and his friend, who was, I think, my sister. And my brother is also creative in his way. He is like, he understood the internet before people understood the internet. So he did well with internet marketing and things like this. I, I need to call, talk to him. I need some help with that myself. Oh yeah, we all do, don't we? That's yeah. very good to have him. <laughs> Well, these days, I mean, it, it was reasonably important pre-COVID just to be capable, but now it's incredibly important. Right. Yes, that's true. One thing that COVID has done is to make me realize Instagram and to be seen on this platform. So I had to never really, I, Instagram was my personal, like I would put a selfie with my mom on Instagram. That That was my Instagram basically. But now I have focused my Instagram. COVID did that to me. <laughs> and my brother, he gave me good advice. Yeah, I, I hear lots of different advice from different people about how to utilize Instagram as a creative person. Some people say, like, make it your brand. Some people say, sort of make it playful. Uh, unfortunately, there's no, seems to be no consistent, like, I want an Excel spreadsheet with like a point by point list of like, do this, do this, do this, and you'll achieve good results. But nobody can do that because each of us are unique and each of us have our unique styles and our unique looks and our unique ways of interacting with social media. And so unfortunately there is no Excel spreadsheet or bullet points that can do that for us, which annoys me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not one universal one, but you could have a custom made one for you somehow. Could I? Okay. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sounds marvelous. I would love to find that person. Unfortunately, of course, we don't have, you know, the problem with the problem with social media that I find. So here we'll just jump right into this. 
it's it's run by an algorithm. None of us know what the algorithm is. They keep changing it on us and we can never keep up. So as soon as we figure out how to do it, they change it on us. But beyond that, it's it's kind of a, a little bit of a cult of personality, a little bit of branding, like marketing, basically like all the kinds of things that most people who went into the creative industries were trying to avoid by going into the creative industries. And yet now we're like slaves to it. Yeah. It's tricky. I mean, the way I would normally approach it would just be if I would have an exhibition, I would make it known through social media and post and do it, make, you know, some institution or the gallery makes an event and I would invite people and post it to my profile and so on. And maybe have some photographs from the making of, you know, on Instagram, something like that. But I mean, in, yeah, in COVID, something happened. Like my work kind of turned more just from my hand to a paper, not because normally my work is quite in a productive mode and I work with a lot of moving components. So then I was just making photos of my drawings and putting them out and stuff. And that, my whole like January and February were a roller coaster of putting out drawings and having people wanting my drawings and selling them. Congratulations. I very rarely hear of people actually selling through posts on Instagram. Well, yours truly did that. Congratulations. What was your trick? I need to figure that out. Well, I had heard my friend told me about this artist support pledge. Have you heard about that? No. That is somebody in London, I believe, came up with that a year ago or so. And it's a hashtag, artist support pledge. Oh, yes, I know what you're talking about. So like for every, like all the profits or whatever, or majority of the profits from any sales goes to supporting an arts organization during COVID. No, just go straight into your pocket. <laughs> but there... <laughs> I totally misunderstood that hashtag then. Well, or I, I misunderstood it and pocketed everything. It's also a possibility. Uh, no way. I thought, I thought that that one was like basically you're selling, let's say, you know, 10 prints. And, but, and then you say that you will turn around and buy some work from another artist. Isn't that it? Yes, that's it. So you sell 10 and then you buy of somebody else who is also using artist support pledge hashtag. And you are not allowed to sell them for more than, I think, 200 euros. So it has to be some prints or something that you easily produce. And, you know, I mean, that was fun. Then I got really into Instagram for the whole of January. It was a lot of, takes a lot of time though also. Yes, it does. You brought up having exhibitions and stuff like this. Something that I'm always fascinated by is the nature of commissions. Uh, I hear much more about it here in Europe than I ever did in America because I was born and raised in America, by the way, but I just happened to live here. The commissions, do you propose things to people come to just, like, just call you out of the blue? Like, Hey, we got this commission for like 20,000 euros. Come do it. Or, or like, how does that work? Yeah. It could be like an open call for a, in a public space or something like that. That's very common in Europe. I think especially in, well, I know in Sweden, it's very common. I've never done that. But it's more like you, for example, if you're like me who does performances and just work that are very transient, they're only there while they are there and then they don't exist when the exhibition is over, really. That kind of a commission. You're asked to come and make a performance and they facilitate the performance and you get a certain amount of production for production of it and then you get a certain amount for your fee at the end of it. 
and things like that. But that's also North America, I think. It's more prevalent in Europe, though. Mm. Certain parts of America, you know, bigger cities, that kind of stuff goes on. But like most of America is not a bigger cities, unfortunately. So they don't do as much of that as we wish they did. And this can just come about like maybe from a studio visit. And then a year later, like that happened, for example, and it became a long collaboration with people in Canada, in Leftbridge in Canada. And that was started with a studio visit. And then sometime later got into connection with me again. And we thought together and she basically commissioned our work. It was a very fruitful collaboration for me. <laughs> okay, something I've always wondered about, like, so when you do performative works, oftentimes they are, like you were saying, the there's just of that time and place. And so basically anything that anybody else sees is more or less documentation of a performance. How do you feel about the documentation being sort of the representation of an experience that only the select, basically the select few that could be in that city at that time, at that place, got to participate versus the videos or the photos that now are the long-standing sort of things that will become part of your CV, part of your website and all this kind of stuff, sort of the, the ways that people will see, majority of people over your lifetime will see your work. Yeah, this is the question of the impossible, how to preserve a performance. <laughs> it's impossible. And I have worked, I have lectured about this question. It's, a, it's because I used to be also director of the Living Art Museum. And there's a performance archive there, which was very new when I took over the museum. And it's just a video of a performance is certainly not a performance. And a photograph of a performance is certainly not a performance. And props also not. So we took to interviewing people, asking them to describe performances and describe them as if they are describing them really to a blind person and also try to describe the emotion, if you can say, or the ambient or the emotion of the performance, how the reactions of the audience, the light, the smell, everything that doesn't go on film, you know. So that became a series in a radio for the, in the National Broadcasting Service. Just artists really just closing their eyes and remembering the performance and describing them. That's the closest I've ever come to archiving performances. Well, I was going to say, but how do you feel about the fact that you go through all this effort to create your, your artistic expression, that only a limited amount of people will sort of truly experience it, and then everybody else sort of gets a secondhand experience through documentation? I love that, actually, because it, I can kind of almost hide behind that, because I think, for example, painters are extremely brave because their work is going to it's like there forever and they can never do anything about it. But I mean, kind of word of mouth about the performance often makes the performance much more glamorous than it actually was maybe even. And also through <laughs> post-production editing, like you can make your video way more polished and you can make it look like the crowd was much louder and much bigger than they were in reality. Like, yeah. There's a lot of manipulation and sort of, you know, creating entire narratives that can be, added in some ways through that additional ability that, that post-production and documentation allows for. And I mean, the word of mouth of a performance, when somebody tells you about the performance and you imagine the performance, 
And then it adds so much. It's such a, rather than if you see a video of a performance, I think I don't allow my performances to be video taped, for example. I think if I see a video that somebody made with a cell phone or something of my performances, I just, it makes me, it just breaks my heart. It just makes me really sad. <laughs> so I just ask people not to do it. And if I'm going to make a video render of a performative work, then that becomes a video work. It's not the performance anymore. And then it's a production that has to be like a cameraman and light and then, 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 So that's a very different animal. Well, and that's an interesting dynamic that you sort of have chosen to say, okay, a video of a performance is a video art piece versus the performance itself. So you, you have chosen to delineate those as sort of almost different pieces of art. Absolutely, yes. Okay, lovely. I've, I've got this question that's been plaguing me in my mind. A lot of artists, sorry, this is a total change of topic, just so you know. That's fine. <laughs> a lot of artists have these sort of life goals. I guess let's start off with this sort of a, as an open-ended question. What in your artistic practice, what is your sort of top of the hill, best case scenario? What's the thing you most want to achieve in your life? Whoa. <laughs> the thing that I most want to achieve in my life, in my work. In terms of my work. In your work, yes. Just, yes, just to be clear. Don't get me wrong. It's a very hard question. And it, it, like, it, it, for me, like, even when I started this podcast, I had a particular goal in my mind. After doing this for now two years, I have a very different goal in my mind. Like, so I mean, it's, an, it's an evolving thing, and it ever changes throughout your life, I'm sure. But, okay, here, let me, so, let me take it a step back, and I'll give you a reason why I'm asking this question. I'm an American. Americans are generally sort of about capitalism and making money. So oftentimes our goal is to make money. Even in the arts, our, our goal, like when, when I find that when American artists sit down, we talk about how many, how many works are you selling? How much money are you making? What are you selling things for? Like you're at, you're you, they talk about the money part of it. And then I find when I stand in Europe, it's talking about either concepts or grants or residencies or commissions or other sort of things about sort of how, instead of selling works, like the, the, the reputable names that are supporting you in some way seems to be a much more important aspect of the arts in Europe. Does that make sense? I think so. I know what you mean with North America and the kind of private sector supporting arts, whereas in Europe, it's more like the Ministry of Education and Culture is going to support artists. Just to be clear, we don't have one of those ministries in the United States. <laughs> right. So it's a very different approach, I suppose. But then again, in North America, I mean, people, how do you, what do you call these people like philanthropists and people like this who then start things, start residencies or art communities and things. That's a very, just can bring another type of creativity. But I mean, my, just first of all, my goal, if just so that I answer that, yes, is to, of course, live off what I do. That's, I'm definitely wanting to do that and live so that I can not think about money too much. I don't like to think about money. So in order not to think about money, you have to have a little bit of it. If you don't have any of it, you think about it all the time. 
correct. <laughs> yeah, which is not a good position to be in. But I think that my goal is just always to challenge myself and enjoy what I'm doing and also, you know, raise questions for myself and then try to approach these questions. And now I'm just speaking in my work, you know, and also try to be brave, you know, go into new things. I, <laughs> I try. I don't think I am very brave. But yeah, that's my goal. Also, my goal is also to enjoy it. Like if I sit down and meditate and I think what, you know, what comes to me, what do I want? It means what I want is to enjoy work. When it becomes a burden and when it becomes really stressy and nervous and angsty about it, then there's something wrong. I totally agree. I take Xanax when I have those kinds of problems. Like. It's perfectly acceptable. I used to smoke a lot of pot for that, but I you know, grew, outgrew that. I now use pharmaceuticals. All right. <laughs> well, it's because it's way easier to get in Europe. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Okay, but wait, you, okay, you brought up like doing meditation and stuff like this. I read something, which by the way, kudos for you. You have a Wikipedia page. Mm. Not, not every art, living artist has a Wikipedia page. It's very impressive. Well done as well. Did you make it yourself? I'm guessing your brother had something to do with this. Uh, my brother might have had something. I started making it when I was doing, like when I was doing the museum, I did a Wikipedia for my dad, for me, for some other Icelandic artists that weren't, and also like tried to define what is, I went into this Wikipedia rabbit hole. But my Wikipedia site, then I, I think it's much more strict now. I think I came into a kind of a backdoor when it wasn't so strict at that time. And then my Wikipedia page, I think if I was wanting to do a Wikipedia page now, I wouldn't be able to. And also, I think they were always going to take it down because it was incomplete. And my brother might have written in, you know, then it means that somebody else has to come and add to it. And some people might have done that. So now it's valid. So. <laughs> All right. Well, the, the thing, okay, because you mentioned uh, meditating. And I read in there that you are a part of a Icelandic neo-pagan organization. Right. Yes, I am. I so want to know what that is. Yeah, that's Ausatruafjallaid, it's called. I didn't want to butcher the pronunciation, so I just went with the definition, yes. <laughs> so my father is also pagan, so we are, it's a Nordic mythologies. And my father's whole over is all about that. All, you know, he, since I'm a child, he illustrated folklore and made illustrations of the folkloric stories and also the Nordic mythologies. Do you know anything about that? Americanized versions of it, yes, a little bit. Yeah, there's also part, what's it like the comics have to, like Thor and these gods, you know? <laughs> That's what it's <laughs> We do know we do know Thor, yes. And and Loki and and Asgard and all that kind of stuff, yeah. And anything from Marvel, yeah, got that. Yeah. So I grew up in that world. This all comes from the sagas and the Eddas and then folklore. And this was written down some maybe in the 12th, 13th century. But before that, it was a mouth to mouth stories. And then this man called Snorri wrote them down. And that's what everything we know about it is based on now. So I've just been a part of this. I mean, I was grew up also partly on a farm with a man who kind of revived this 
in Iceland. His name is Sveinbjörn Beintensson. He taught me how to chant this poetry and he was a friend of the family and him and my father were good friends also. So I recently, or two years ago, published a book. I know, yes, The Divination Deck. Yes, exactly. So we did, that was like a collaboration with my father. Okay. Yeah, I was going to sort of go on to that as well, but I'm still interested. Let's go back a step to the whole neo-paganism. You have to understand my father. Now I'm probably, I don't know. I never know agnostic, atheist. I'm never quite sure which one it is. But anyways, I'm one of those like not really spiritually related people. But my father is an Episcopal priest. So religions and beliefs always fascinate me. So what? how does that sort of... Uh, manifest so like what what are some of the things that you do as a as a neo-pagan well if i would be very practicing i would celebrate winter solstice and summer solstice and equinoxes the autumn and spring equinoxes those are very important and i would acknowledge earth and the sky and i would give the main directions names of some of the gods and i would ask them to you know, partake in whatever I'm doing. I married my friend, for example, and I would then sing, chant from the Eddas and things like that. Okay. I'm not trying to, like, <laughs> I, I just, am, I, you know, I believe you're probably one of the first neo-pagans I've ever spoken to, so I'm just sort of interested. Yeah, and I mean, I may be not such a good example of somebody who is a neo-pagan because I have been pagan because I kind of grow up in it also. And it's not like a thing that I started to get into as an adult. I'm just always have, I mean, I've been around it since childhood. You could Sure, it was just what you were born into. Yeah. And my mom is Christian. My mom is a Protestant. And I was Christian into the Christian church, but I removed myself when I was 20-something and went into the, this pagan society. That was mostly just so that my some of my taxes wouldn't go to the church. They would just go to this. I'd rather support that than the, <laughs> than the church. And yeah, so... Wait, I'm sorry. Wait, your taxes go to the church? Yeah, in Iceland, the church is part of the still. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's really weird. It's some kind of a little dinosaur that still exists in Iceland. It's, I think, the most atheist country maybe in the world. <laughs> yeah, I would have absolutely said they were probably more secular and atheist than anything else. So I'm very surprised by that. Yeah, it is surprising. It's some kind of a leftover from some olden times that just should be changed, but they just haven't gotten around to it, I guess. The the other thing that I'm fascinated about is the Living Art Museum. You said you were the director of it. I know you were also on the board of it as well. Give me a little understanding of what the Living Art Museum is. I hope to be talking to the current director in the near future, but as of this moment, I don't know much about it. So give me a primer on it. Yeah, so the current director, there was just an annual meeting just the other day, and the, there's a new current director, Sunna. And she, what can I tell you? It was founded by artists. So it's a kind of a unique institution in that, that it was in the 70s, an artist 
initiative as many things were then in you know especially in Holland and I guess also in New York it's about the time when Franklin Furnace was being founded and these kind of artist initiatives that became exhibition venues founded and run by artists and this is very much the Icelandic or Reykjavik art scene or Icelandic art scene actually and you know you do it yourself and we're all in it together there isn't really a commercial scene it's a very, very small commercial scene. It's a very big artist-run, artist-initiative scene. And so this museum was founded to save artworks that kind of official museums weren't interested in. And this was like the fluxus and the new conceptual art that was coming to Iceland, new at the time, mostly from Holland. So it was a group of artists that founded this museum and it is a member based. So in the beginning, it was if you're an artist, you can become a member and then you kind of are a representative and you can also then donate works. So it's a gift based collection. And it, this collection became very important because this museum was the only venue that was collecting this type of art. And if they would not have done it, it would have been lost. And at this time, there was a movement called the Zoom movement. Dieter Roth was coming to Iceland and he brought a lot of influence also from the continent. I mean, you have to understand Iceland is a very isolated geographically island and art scene just drinks up everything that comes from just like a thirsty flower, just drinking up things that come from the continent or come from the United States. But it's also interestingly located between the United States or the American tectonic plate and the Europa tectonic plate. So there's always a stopover. And there was a lot of artists that came during a stopover program that were just stopping over. Maybe let's say Donald Judd was coming, going to some museum in Munich, but he would stop over in Iceland. And then somebody really clever in the Living Art Museum would grab him. And So you have a Donald Judd in the museum? No. Yes, actually we do. But yeah, actually I think we do. Good. Yeah. And then this museum just evolves. It's like a relay run, this museum. There's always somebody who really wants to take it over and has a passion for it. And then they mold it into what they think it should be. And then they give that to the next runner who then takes it. And it's always a board of artists. And maybe now more recently also maybe art historians or some kind of art theorists and more in the professions around the arts are coming into the boards. But mostly, yeah, you could definitely say it's an artist-run museum with an artist-based, donation-based collection, focusing on performances, artist publications, and then collecting the history of other artist initiatives. So it's a little bit, I always called it the mothership of artist initiatives. And it, like most other things cultural in Iceland, are funded somehow state-run funds, yes? Yeah, state and city. Speaking of that, so you you, you talked about how like basically it's donations, and the first thing that pops in my head with that is, is, like, is if every artist could donate something and the museum just said, yes, thank you, I keep thinking, holy crap, that's a lot of storage. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But I would imagine you could just... Yeah. I mean, how do you deal with all that? 
there was in the beginning that every member should donate one artwork every five years or or something like that. But then it was also things just got left behind and then they got taken. The, it's a little bit complicated history of this museum as a museum that's actively collecting works. That's how it started out, but the focus shifted on, onto the venue more and making, you know, producing exhibitions. And then the focus shifted again uh, to the collection. And now the focus is a little bit more equal on the collection and the exhibition venue. But I don't know actually what is the policy now in terms of how the collect, you know, I think they ask artists for works and you can also propose, I would like to donate this work. And they can also say no. For example, I was going to say, because I could totally imagine it being completely overrun with artists yes. just saying, basically, I want to put a piece in a museum so that I can put it on my CV that there's a piece in a museum collection. Like, Yeah, or you could say that, like, I don't want to pay for this storage for this humongous sculpture anymore. Let's give it to the Living Art Museum. So. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. But that's not really possible. <laughs> okay. All right. That's what I was sort of wondering. But okay, within that though, so back to you, you say that you go between Iceland and Berlin and and other parts of the world, but mostly between those two. How and where do you like store your artwork? Is all your artwork in Berlin, but you live in Iceland or all your artwork in Iceland, but you sort of just work in Berlin? So, and then how do you deal with transporting everything and all this kind of stuff? That's part of the reason that I'm in Berlin, because transporting from Iceland is very complicated and it's more complicated to produce from Iceland. So I have a studio here and some of my works are here. And then I also have glorified storage, which, yeah, it's a storage. Let's just call it what it is. In Reykjavik, I'm not using it as a studio. And so that's a kind of a lager or an archive. Some of it's in Reykjavik and some of it's some of the more recent works are here in Berlin. Well, because transport and storage is one of those things that all artists are just, we hate having to deal with, basically. Because like, I met this guy here in Prague one time. He's a stone sculptor. And he was telling me how he has to pay like 20,000 euros a year just to store his old sculptures that are not on exhibition or haven't sold. Just That's just his like hard cost of like, has to pay that every and then the place where he had it stored got sold and so he then had to pay an additional twenty thousand euros to transport it to a new place to then store it so like he had to rent a crane and everything to move it this just happened to my friend now she's a sculptress and it's just endless endless headache the storage yeah i don't have that so much i mean it's very transient. Like if I make installations and make like wooden structures and sculptures, they get taken apart again. I would rebuild them. So that's probably strategically not the most clever approach, but somehow that has been my approach. <laughs> I'm not necessarily recommending it. So like my recent exhibitions have been lots of ropes and rings and drawings and then the drawings end up in various collections and my last, the rat choir that you saw, that's going to go into the National Gallery. So I'm not really having problem with storage. I store things. I mean, mostly I'm worried about my digital storage. I need to, that's what I'm kind of worried about now, actually. I have a lot of things on tape and CDs and those zip drives and things from my works from the 90s. I need to do something about that. 
I still have optical disk drives, like the pre-CD versions of things. I still have that shit laying around. Yeah, these like fat disks, the zip disk, yeah. Yep, the zip disks and the jazzy drives. Remember those? Right, I remember those, yeah. This is very expensive to convert this and put it into a cloud, I think. Or in Iceland, it's very expensive. I have to check out, maybe in Czech Republic. Probably pretty cheap here. I'd probably even go to like Poland or someplace like that. It'd probably even be cheaper. Aha, that's good. Yeah, I'm going to make a note of that. But Yeah, I mean, there are places that are better with those kinds of things. Like, but it, it is a very interesting issue that the, the, the digital archiving of our works, like we don't talk about it very much. Me, I'm obsessive. I have multiple backups of everything. Like uh, I have... I won last time I did a count, I have 32 hard drives for a total of like 36 terabytes of stuff, which in reality is not 32. It's actually 16 because I have two hard drives for everything backed up. So I have the original and a backup, but I'm doing it all wrong because they're all in the same place. So if like, so if I have a fire, both my original and my backup, they're both going to be destroyed. So I need to find a way to separate the, the originals in one place and the backups in another place in case of some, some catastrophe. Yeah. In my archive in Reykjavik, I have like a box of mini TV tapes, box of CDs, and a box of all these like floppy disks and zip disks and all this. And I'm especially worried about tapes because there'll be damage to it. So I really need to do something about that, actually. I should actually, I'm going to Iceland on Friday, so I should really go and bring these to the continent and figure out how to do it here. Yeah, this worries me. I would imagine there are some grants out there or some support for basically like, uh, you know, archiving of kind of thing. I have tried to apply. Okay, so they do exist. In Iceland, there's a fund that is called Mintstef. It's like the royalties of works that nobody claims, it goes into a fund and then this gets distributed among practicing artists. So I thought that was a good one for it, but they have supported other things, but they didn't support that. I'm trying to think what we call that, um, royalty-free uh, type of things, uh, public domain, that's what we call it. No, it's it means like if there's a, you know, because there's the royalties is for 70 years... It goes to the family. Well, it's it's li- lifetime of artist plus 70 years, generally. Right. And then when nobody claims the royalties, then this institution claims them and puts them in a fund and redistributes them to artists. Oh, okay. Yeah, we would call, yeah, we don't do the redistribution of all that. We just call it royalty for um, uh, a public domain, which means that people can use it for free. Yeah, no, this is not, that's not what I'm talking about okay no that's good yeah no this is an and they also have lawyers that help you and things they're very it's a really good one that one mint step yeah love it all right something else i've been wondering a lot about statements and generally sort of writing about your artworks i'm assuming you're pretty good at it because you you do proposals you've done uh, residencies you do lots of this kind of stuff so how do you feel about the general position of the world as far as how much we have to write about our work? Well, it's kind of understandable that you have to write about your work, because if you want to take control of the narrative, let's say, then you have to write it or write it in collaboration with someone. 
I mean, I know a lot of artists don't like doing that. And I certainly often also run into trouble, especially with artist statement. I find that quite hard to navigate. But I think just trying to really be honest and say what it is rather than what you think it should be or like rather than to go into this rabbit hole of using jargon and adding layers and wanting it to sound in a certain way. I find that if I read that, which there are a lot of this kind of artist statement that are, that you just can see right through that it's just a lot of jargon. But when you come across artist statement that you could just really see that the artist just sat down and really tried to say what it is that they try to achieve with their work, that's very refreshing. Uh, I love a good artist statement that like enhances your appreciation of the work and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And just honest and simple, you know? I love it. But what I don't like is when like I could sit down and I could write a beautiful thing that like if you read this entire page document I wrote that you would have a great understanding of my work. However, when I apply for a grant or a residency or even do a proposal, whatever, I have to make it 250 words. (laughs) And that thing of like making it so we have to take something that we may have written beautiful and eloquent and condense it down to like an elevator pitch really fucking annoys me Mm -hmm. yeah me too that's really boring (laughs) it's a no i'm not bored by it i'm annoyed by it because i mean i put a lot of time and effort to make it not jargony and make it eloquent and make it understandable and all that and basically and when i i find that when i have to enforce to condense it down to this like 250 words 500 words whatever the easiest ways to explain things are jargon because they're basically short for understanding something so instead of being eloquent about it i actually have to start to use jargon or else they're not going to get it do you know what i do sometimes in this case if i possibly can get away with it because sometimes it's like a form that you fill out and you only can put 250 words so you kind of try to boil it down usually i just kind of take the beginning and try to end it and then i put in attachment the full one if they allow for attachments that's excellent yes yeah they almost always do so then i kind of just i'm like well you can't get away with only wanting 250 words you're gonna have to read the whole thing Well, but you want to do that 250 words in a nice teasing way that would entice them to want to read the entire one. Because like if your 250 words is a crap 250 words and uninteresting and whatever, you know, then nobody's going to want to read that bigger thing. So you still even have to make that enticing in some way. Yeah. And the thing with text is like you, for example, an artist statement, you're saying something and then you're kind of re-saying in a text that's like a paragraph like this big. I'm making a gesture of how big it is for the audience. <laughs> yes, thank you for the, the audio <laughs> recording, the visuals. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of, you could break it down into three parts. The first part will normally say everything that's there then, I, or at least in my case, that's, and I have kind of found that. So I take the beginning, then I go through the rest and say, is there something that's not in the beginning that really... Because, you know, it's like you have the first part of the paragraph is saying it, and the next two ones is kind of hammering it in from this point of view and hammering it in from the other point of view. I try my best not to repeat myself, but sometimes you have to, because sometimes sometimes one sentence or one paragraph is sort of not elaborating enough. Because, you know, there's, of course, when it comes to art, because there's, 
this is what I'm going to do. So there's sort of the description of the action or the the product or whatever, but then there's the why you're going to do it. And then there's even the like how you're going to achieve that. So you could be talking about the exact same thing, but from three different ways of like what, what, how, and why. Yeah. So hammering it in from different points of view. Yeah. Same thing. So yeah, if you have to condense it, you just take, I mean, that's what I do. Take the first part. I'm maybe I'm lazy. <laughs> Well, but the other thing that I found that's very interesting is like, so my teachers, so keep in mind, I was taught in the United States in the late 90s, early aughts. And my teachers were always telling me that what you have to do with an artist statement is basically be a cheerleader. Like they used to tell me this phrase, they used to say, nobody gives a shit about your art except you. So you need to convince people. <laughs> so like, so it's the idea that we had to write convincing things to try and explain to people why they should be interested in our art fast forward 20 years i'm now in europe and here in europe i talk to a bunch of people and and everybody keeps going oh no don't don't be a cheerleader do not talk highly about yourself just say what you're doing be humble about it and be factual about it honest yeah and honest and the and the people who are reading it, they will make their own judgment on whether it's quality or not. Like, that's not your place to do that. And I'm like, thank you, fucking teachers that pointed me down the wrong path for 20 years. Yeah, that sounds really weird to be your own cheerleader in such a way that you, when, how would that even, what would that even sound like? Uh, my work is awesome. Oh, no, it's things like uh, comparing, like talking about your influences and using very important people in the, the canon and talking about how your professors relate to this whole narrative of, you know, my teachers did this. And then and, and because of my influence of these people, I fit into this canon in this way. So basically you're offering up to the arts industry saying this is where I fit in the art history. Now you just believe me and accept it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. That's not cheerleading yourself. That's just placing yourself. That makes a lot of sense. But that's not our job. Our job is to make work. It's the curator and the gallery and the institution's jobs to do that kind of stuff. It's not ours. But this and this leads to like my general point of 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 everything in this podcast is that I feel like a lot of the jobs that used to be done by other people, whether it was a gallerist or a curator, all those have now fallen back to the artist to have to do. Like we have to sell our own artwork. We have to promote our work on social media. We have to build our own websites. We have to do all these things that used to be the jobs of curators, gallerists, and other people in the industry. And I think it's kind of unfair. Yeah. Oh man, I wish I had somebody to do that for me. I'm trying to push that onto my henna partner. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, here's the password to my interface of the website. Could you <laughs> read the proofread the CV for me? Still hasn't done it, but I'm still trying to push it onto him. My wife is an accountant. I keep asking her to do my books for me, and she still hasn't done it. Ah, damn it. Yeah, man. Seven years. Seven years. She still hasn't done my books for me. But there's kind of like a balance that you can try to find of like when you're feeling like making work, 
then you should definitely not do anything but make work. But sometimes you also are like, oh, you can't, you just don't feel it. You just have a block. You can't do it. And then that's a good time to, you know, get working on that PDF you always meant to get working on or whatever. <laughs> Organize your studio and then get working on that PDF. And, you know, you divide your set time like that. But the precious time is, you know, when your studio time, when you're just making things and thinking up things and then you have to forbid yourself to work on your website or you know that's a precious time and somehow that try to navigate it like that i keep them physically separated i don't even have internet access in my studio to try and intentionally keep all that stuff away wow i'm so addicted to it <laughs> don't get me wrong I, I, I download things to listen to and whatever before i go into the studio but i just don't have I don't want the, uh, if I could like sit there and watch Netflix in the studio, I actually would never get any work done in the studio either. So that can't happen. Yeah. Podcasts are good for studio time. Absolutely. I listen to podcasts all the time, but I could, I could not have the internet available easily. That would be too, too tempting. <laughs> all right. Any topics that we haven't come up, uh, talked about that you would like to talk about? I don't remember anything that we have talked about. So it's like it's gone in the slipstream. The only reason I know what we talked about is because I took notes. It's fine. Yeah. I still have two more questions. So, but, but, but I generally give an opportunity. Like if there's something you want to talk about that I haven't asked about, something important in your career that uh, you wish to address that we haven't. Just shoot with the questions, I, <laughs> I'd say. Great. Last two questions. All right. I, um, I generally finish up with two questions, and the first one is, could you tell me three contemporary artists that you're looking at? That I'm looking at now? Yeah. Or that I just look at and have influenced me in general kind of thing? Could be influencing you in general. It, it doesn't, yeah. I'm, I leave it vague so that you could do it your own way. But the idea is contemporary artists, so don't pull out like Michelangelo or some bullshit like that. Mm. I don't know what to say to this. It's, there's very many come to mind. Well, let's talk about, for example, I like Mike Kelly from the United States. It's like deeply personal art and the installations are, it's like a, there's a tragedy there and there's a lot of humor and there's, it's just like a whole world of imagination that I really appreciate. I really appreciate his works. And then I also want to mention Hilma Klim because I just, she was just recently kind of revived. And I went with my mother and my son and we saw a big, beautiful exhibition of hers here in the Hamburger Bahnhof. And I didn't really know her before that. And then I started to look into her story and her kind of eccentricness of not wanting her art to be shown and her perception of time and the art world. So I really like her works and love her paintings. And I also love Laurie Anderson. I just love her, I have to say. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I really love her. Because she is such a beautiful storyteller and she just has such a beautiful way of like changing the perspective a little bit and opening things wide up. And I love that about her. And I strive to do that also to 
like approach work or approach a question or a topic in a certain way and then approaching it from a little bit another point of view and opening it up again. Like all these works about animal behavior and things that I did in this before mentioned Canadian collaboration. That's an example of that. So did I mention three? Yes, I did. That is three. Yeah. Yes. Yay. Okay, good. <laughs> and then the last question, um, I, you, I'm going to try and phrase this differently. Let's see how it goes over. Otherwise, if you can't answer it, I will go, I'll fall back on a different version of it. So my new version of it is, what's the best advice you ever received? Yeah, I think of a couple. Like first, just keep at it. Even if you think it's like going nowhere sometimes and you go through these periods where it's just like it's going nowhere. I'm, I'm going to stop being an artist. This is pointless. I should become a, a, a you know, animal doctor. <laughs> that would have been my other vocation. But just keep at it because it all comes in like valleys and it comes in these like, how do you say that in English? Waves and valleys, Eb ebbs and flows. Ebbs and flows, definitely. So keep at it because it always, you'll come around to it again and it'll again, you know, ignite you and make you excited and it'll give you this fix that you need, that you get from making art. I'll tell you that my professor, Mark Van Proyen at the San Francisco Art Institute, he came, he had this magnificent thing. He did this whole illustration. So I'm going to try and describe this illustration considering this is an audio podcast. <laughs> okay. He called it the wave. And what it is, is so like a wave comes and crashes onto the beach, right? So at some point in your career, you're going to be picked up and you're going to be drawn up in the water as part of the wave and you'll be riding the wave, doing really well. And then at some point or another, that part of your career is going to crash into the beach. And then that water that hits the beach then gets dragged back out. And one of two things will happen. Either you will then end up being dragged down into a reef and so like, so basically you, you did your high point and then you crashed and then you sort of went into the gutter, more or less, the reef. Or you, you, you change and you evolve and you somehow get caught back up in another wave. And that next wave then goes up and sort of your career goes well again and then it crashes again. And, but there's that constant need to evolve and change and grow in order to continually you know, not fall off into the reef because it's exponentially more difficult to get from the reef back up to the crest of a wave than it is to sort of stay in that cycle of wave and crash, wave and crash. I thought that was a lovely illustration. Yeah, I totally get that. That's what I meant also by this up and flow because you crash really and you just don't see the point of it. And why did I choose this? It's so hard and nobody asked me to make these works and who are they for and therefore nobody and my storage is full in Iceland of some works that nobody wants and nobody asked me to make. And they just cost me And I'm broke. Yeah, and I'm broke. So, you know, it's understandable if you think it's just a pointless thing and you just, what am I doing? But then you rise up again with this wave that your professor there described and then it gets exhilarating and you just get, that's a compulsion almost, like you just need to... Well, hopefully you catch that wave again. I mean, and this is one of those things that happens in artists' careers. Sometimes they get stuck in a style or a thought or a concept and they get stuck in a rut and they don't continue to grow and evolve. And if that, and a lot of times, sometimes, don't get me wrong, there's some artists that do that 
and it's the best thing for them. Like it is the thing that defines their career. But that I feel is the rarest of things because I think that continuing to change and grow and evolve is one of the most important parts of the creative industry. I mean, it's the same as like uh, being a graphic designer. Like if I, if when I was learning design in college, we were still using black tape and like <laughs> taping it down on pieces of paper and then, and then like photographing it and then sending it to a printer. If I didn't evolve and learn new technologies and new, new, new advancements and software and things like this, I wouldn't be able to keep up. And being an artist is kind of the same way. Like you have to evolve your ideas, your techniques, your styles, your whatever throughout your career in order to just stay relevant. Yeah, to stay relevant to what? To the artwork? That's a good question. <laughs> as, soon, as soon as I said that, I was like, oh, yeah, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. Who is it for, really? Is it for the art, the goddess of art? Are we laying things at her altar and so that art can, you know, move forward in time and space and the world? Is that who we are doing it for? Or what is it, really? Because if people say this, they say, I want to stay relevant. We have to add, what can I add to the work so that it has an edge in what? In the art world, like what? You know, who is it for? <laughs> I often sit around in my studio and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm either ahead of the curve and like, you know, just ahead of the curve, I guess is the easiest way, or I'm behind the curve. I never, I'm, I don't ever feel like, like I'm on the curve. I'm either too far ahead and everybody else is going to catch up or I'm too far behind and I just wasn't paying attention. That's where I always think I am. I think the best, I mean, everything, you could just, if you think like maybe everything has been, as far as we know, at least now, I mean, we, you can't see the forest for the trees because you're just surrounded by the trees. So let's say as far as we know, most things have been done already. What you try to do is you take things and you reassemble them and deconstruct them and put them together again in maybe hopefully your own way. And hopefully it excites you and brings you and maybe even some of your viewers something that they have a little in their brain when they look at your art. That's, you know, goal achieved for me, at least. Yeah, but the question of why do we make our work, that's going to haunt me. <sighs> yeah, why indeed? It's such a hard, hard life we choose for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, but I mean, I've I've had this question before, and the 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 best answer, well, one of the elements, let's say, it's not a complete answer to the question, but one element of that question is, I hate it when people say, "Oh, I make work for myself." That's bullshit, because if you only made work for yourself, there would be no need for you to ever show them to anybody else. That the, anybody who makes work and never shows it to anybody else. They absolutely make it for themselves. I 100% agree to that. However, all of us working artists, we show our work to other people. So therefore, it's not for us because we want the approval, acceptance, whatever of others. Yeah, or we are moving in the world, you know, we're kind of navigating the world and we have a need to express ourselves and we have a need to... It's a, some kind of a need or a compulsion, like 
that you just who it's for is just for the movement of the whole thing like of the not necessarily the art world but just for the larger existence of you and your relationship with expression and the goddess of art <laughs> i'm just gonna go back to her <laughs> it's i'm just gonna lay my work at her altar and hope she likes them <laughs> I mean, it, it is a thing too. I mean, there there is the part of like I have I have the need or the compulsion to express something or share something or just even maybe investigate something or research something. Like there's also a component to it. But then, why do I make this work? Like, not not only why do I make work, but why do I make that work? Yeah, I mean, why does anybody do anything? Why? I mean, that's actually like a quite an eternal question. It's a question that children ask. It's a very true question, you know. My mother would ask this question. Like, why did you do that, Gunnhildur? It's a, it's a question that podcasters ask. <laughs> yeah, it's a very kind of true question. It's a pure question. It's a kind of a beautiful question. I don't think anybody can really answer it. No, I don't have an answer for it. Other, I mean... There is some desire to feel a connection between the the things I'm feeling and then put it here. Okay, I'll give it, and put it into the world and then feel like somebody understands what I was going through. Like I'll give you a great example of one of the few times that that has actually been successful for me. I did a, a piece and I put it on exhibition. It was my master's thesis and. This guy, it was this very, very, very intimate personal work that I did. And this guy just walks up to me and he whispers in my ear. He's like, how did you get into my head? And I was like, yes, I did it. Like I succeeded. Like I, I touched somebody in some way. Like I connected in a way that even that person wasn't ready to be connected on. And that, that was one of the most biggest times that I felt like my artwork really was incredibly successful. Sadly, that was 20 years ago. But. <laughs> and I mean, but you know, if you have like friends that are musicians and they have, you know, they get a tune that just sticks in their brain and then they start working on it and there are little melodies that just come to them and then they need to write them down and or they lose them again. And then there's people who write fiction, write novelists and write poetry. Their ideas come to them and they flow through them somehow. And then characters are alive in their heads. And, you know, then they, the fate of these characters that come to their heads are kind of, you know, are played out in these novels or in these narratives. And then there's our language, the visual arts language. So we get a bug and then we have to get it out visually. That's what we do for some reason. <laughs> Who knows why? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I've often been thinking about like my child. I don't have a child yet, but when I have a child, will I encourage them or to be in the arts? And I'm always like, maybe not. <laughs> like, it's not an easy life. I mean, a lot of people think it's incredibly romantic and exotic and all this and. It is in many ways, but in many ways, it's really hard and emotional and difficult. I mean, the amount of no and negatives and whatever that I put up with on a daily and weekly basis is exponentially more than some easier job in the world, you know? 
And just the struggle and this and the doubt that you have about, you know, the, all the little gnawing that gnaws at you in your working process and how incredibly brave people have to be. And I mean, when you're standing on the outside looking in, it might look whatever you said there, exotic and romantic. But from inside out, it certainly is really a struggle to be an artist. And I mean, my son is an artist and I... Did not encourage that, I have to admit. I mean, I just thought, I mean, child, go move in the world and be safe and feel secure financially. And just, you're not going to have that if you're an artist. But he became an artist. But we have incredibly colorful lives. We have great stories, great experiences. We get to... We get the opportunity and the luxury of being able to take time to investigate ideas and concepts that lots of people just never even, it's just not even their lives. Like, so privilege, that's a good word, yes. That's true. That's a beautiful privilege. It's beautiful. That is really such a precious thing to allow yourself to do. And then you something comes out of it, and then you stand with your work, like your professors there said, nobody's going to stand with your work unless you stand with it. Or somebody who asked you to exhibit it in their venue was going to stand with it, probably, hopefully. <laughs> They'll stand with it as long as, as long as it sells or as long as ticket sales or whatever. Like, unfortunately, the industry is a very fluid thing and like you're 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 in and you're hot for a while and then you're not and that's just the part of it yeah but if you find if you find people to collaborate with which happens often like a curator or a director of a space or something and then you just connect with them and you feel that they support your work and that's a beautiful collaboration i mean when that happens I haven't found that recently, so it feels very far away from me. But it, it is an interesting thing, that, and this comes up a lot in the podcast that we talk about, is that a lot of people think being an artist is this solo practice. Like, oh, I sit in my studio, smoke cigarettes, and drink coffee all day, and think, and then just like throw something on a paint canvas or whatever. But it's not. I mean, it, it really is like finding collaboratives, whether they're other artists or whether they're curators or collectors or gallerists or institution people, whatever. Like, it it's not a solo job. Like, it's the job of not just being able to produce something, but be able to work together and collaboratively, either in the market or in the the production of kind of thing. Like, it takes more. You, the idea of a solo artist, I think, is an overly romanticized idea that's not true anymore. No, it hasn't been true for a long time. It's you can just let go of that. I mean, that's not nobody. I, does anybody? Do? <laughs> I think that's yesteryear. <laughs> well, people still think it's true, sadly, but yeah, I think it's evolved. Yeah, definitely. Another thing I want to to remove from the vernacular is the idea of a starving artist. I'm so fucking tired of talking about starving artists. I, I mean, because they never talk about starving lawyers or starving doctors, but it's starving artists. So, like, why can't we get past that? Why can't we fund us? And that wouldn't that make it easy? <sighs> yeah, I don't know. These are quite romantic ideas. I think people like to maybe hold on to these ideas of like an artist taking masculine and cutting off his ear and stuff. <laughs> 
<laughs> that was a little extreme, but okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> and then being very poor in his attic and then being discovered after his death. And usually that would be a white man in some European country or I don't know. People like to hold on to these ideas. I know, but I'm a huge fan. I, I'm a huge fan. I just want to sort of point this out of... I'll, I'll put it all together as Scandinavian region. So Norway, Sweden, Iceland, Finland, all, you all seem to have the right idea as far as my perspective on the arts, as far as the amount of support that you all put into it versus the Americas and other parts of the world. Like you all seem to do it right, and I highly uh, respect it and kind of wish I was born into it so that I could take advantage of it, but I can't, so... <laughs> Yeah, I am very grateful for the support that, that me and my colleagues get. I mean, there's a lot of people criticize how exactly it's executed and artist grants and project grants and should they be project-based or just practice-based and should it be... And there's this thing of like arts in public spaces, which seems to work very well in Sweden and but is completely dysfunctional in Iceland. And, you know, you, there's like little bits and bobs that you can debate and talk about, but... I would love to hear. Okay, yeah, but overall, I just want to say, I really feel fortunate to be able to apply for support. And yeah, but what would you like to hear about? I would, the one I want to hear about that you just brought up was the issue of like the the debate about using government funds and how it's dispersed or how the decision-making process is done. I have no, I know nothing about how the decision-making process is. So just, I, I'm not asking for your judgment on it, but just like, give me a little like knowledge on like, how is it done? Yeah. So there's, for example, for the Icelandic Ministry of Education and Culture, they have the Artist Salary Fund. I have already spoken with some other Icelandic artists who have informed me about this. Right. So there's like somebody from the ministry, somebody from the Artists Association, somebody from the Arts University of Arts, and then somebody that is chosen who is a practicing artist, and they are a board, and then two members, I think, of the board are always rotating every year. And then three, I think, are rotating every X amount of years or so. So it's always a rotating board. And then there's a certain amount and a certain amount of monthly payments that they distribute. So you apply if you know that you're going to have a project and maybe three projects next year. And you estimate this project will take me two months. And this project will take me three months and this other one will take five months. And then therefore you apply for uh, nine months. How many months was that? Ten months? <laughs> it sounded, yeah, I was going to say nine or ten. Yeah, I wasn't actually listing that closely. But then you'll probably only get or you get nothing or you get five or so. Well, okay, but well, the, the thing is that I'm always fascinated by and I, I would love to try and get somebody from the ministry to talk because I'm interested about... What's the criteria for being able to say, okay, this person is somehow worthy that we should, they've got the merit or the background or the, or their exhibition that they're going to have is worthy of support or whatever. Like what's the criteria that people judge that by? 
I don't actually know. I've never been on this committee, but I think it's based on the application, so on the future projects. And you have to also have proof of collaboration in this project. So it, it has to be an actual project that is going to be shown somewhere. And this exhibition venue has to provide you with a letter of affiliation and that goes into your application. So they partly base it on the application and the projects in the application. And then it's important to, I guess, to be able to you know, convey them decently in a decent way. And then I think they partly also base it on your previous works. So you also have to hand in your portfolio so that they see that you're active and how many, your CV, like, have you been active in the last few years? So, I mean, if you haven't been active in 10 years and you comment, that would probably not help you, I guess. I don't actually know, but I guess. It's perfectly fine. There's some like fabulous things. Like I found out here in the Czech Republic that they, they actually have a thing that in, your, in an artist's lifetime, they can ask the government to give them support f for two years, twice. So like if that, you know, you hit hard times or you have some issue or whatever, that the government will pay your studio fee and buy your artist supplies for two years, two times in your lifetime. And I'm just sitting here. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like in America, that's not even an option, <laughs> period. Like that's not like, that's amazing. Like, I swear to God, I wish I had come to Europe earlier because this kind of shit is just like, why does the rest of the world not go, hey, look, you want to know why Europe is so prominent in the arts world? It's because they fucking fund it and support it and 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 assist with it in, in such a better way than everywhere else in the world. That's my soapbox for the day. Uh -huh. What do you think about though, because the United States have produced a lot of amazing authors and amazing artists. I think you asked me to mention three artists, two of them were from the United States. So how do you explain that then? <laughs> In the past, America was great with being able to have somebody like an author or, or a visual artist being able to get a full-time teaching position that would give them some uh, security to allow them to be incredibly creative. Unfortunately, in the past 10, 15 years, that is basically being eaten away at and now most schools are going to adjuncts and so they know they don't have as much of that security anymore so historically i believe a lot of that was the structure of like tenured teaching positions that gave a lot of time and freedom sabbaticals things like this that are not as prevalent anymore and also kind of communities of artists i feel like maybe in the United States, that they kind of band together and there seems to be, or at least historically, there seems to be a sort of an attitude of we're going to do it. Is it true? What do you think? There seems to be like, a, equate this actually with Icelandic attitude, I sometimes feel like. Well, I mean, there are things like Black Mountain College is a, an excellent example. You know, Jasper Johns and Rauschenberg and all that gang. Like Black Mountain College, I fucking wish I was alive at that time. Holy shit. It would have been amazing to have been a, just even been there. I don't even care, you know, anything else, but just 
those kinds of things like that's what that's another big issue that like has been bubbling around recently is like the idea of like movements that it in the past there were these collaborations of people that are working they're supporting each other and collaborating and and creating a movement uh you know 1920s in paris there was this whole set of movements there things like this and these days there seems to be less cohesive movements it's become i feel like it's becoming more independent like so like a few people are doing something like this over here a few people are doing something like that over there but there's less cohesive uh, definable movements yeah and something to do with that the kind of curatorification of the art world maybe there there's something there because i mean such a movement for example is the Zoom movement in Iceland in Reykjavik in the 70s. And this kind of this sense of community of artists, a communal sense and a place to meet and discuss things. And that's very much, used to be very much the Reykjavik art scene. And for example, when I was newly out of art school, we burglarized the building and took it over. And then it became like this living, breathing house of art. And there should be musicians and writers and performances there and we made just generated loads of exhibitions and just burglarized it called the media had a manifesto ready and rah, like that kind of a spirit which i think is i feel like that's very was also in holland in the 70s i mean i just keep referencing holland and new york because that's all i know i don't know anything about really i don't know much about for example the berlin art scene in the olden days well i mean that's the thing i mean i but i think the point you're getting at with the curating of it maybe it just needs time and distance and then like some art historian or curator to put something together to say oh okay these people that were doing all this stuff in these random places oh yeah okay like we could put all those together into this quote-unquote movement yeah so then they can see the forest because now we are among the trees and we don't like i said earlier this metaphor of the not seeing the forest for the trees then we are just so among it we don't see these movements but maybe they're out there is what you mean maybe we just don't have enough time and distance to be able to to notice it yet but I think it's very important, this community and kind of community of artists. And I look to my friends and colleagues a lot and I need to have conversations with them about my work and about their work and about, and I need to be able to just say, try out things verbally with them. I really need my friends who are also my colleagues. I don't know how, you know, unless uh, without them, I would just be floating around in a void. It would just be. (laughs) I totally understand. So the community of artists, because nobody can understand what it means to be an artist, but artists. Curator cannot know what it means to be an artist. You know, only that's just not possible. So I need that community very much. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the entire episode. We would appreciate if you would take a moment and give us a star rating, preferably a five star rating, and or some comment in the comment section. These are things that help the algorithm that we all are ruled by 
figure out whether we're worthy of listening to, and it will help us in building a wider breadth and larger community around the podcast. So that would be greatly appreciated. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles, and the audio for this episode was edited by Jakub Czerny. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Mm-hmm.